Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Everything good? How was your week? Good. I'm, well, I'm very happy. I am... Uh, it's Wednesday night. Everything's been very, very busy for me and producer Griff um, over the past week and a half, which is why it's the 11th hour, and I'm recording the intro on the 19th floor of a hotel in Belfast. I'm just looking out the window now. It's very beautiful, lots of lights everywhere. Um, and I was going to start the intro with, I always ask you every week how you are, and I was going to tell you a story about something that happened to me this week regarding uh, an Amazon return and uh, an enduring visit to a post office. But I'm not going to tell that story because we're kind of up against it time-wise, but I'll, I'll get back to it this week, and it, yeah, it genuinely, it uh, irked me. Irked? It irked me. Something else that hurt me that's just happened, though, so I thought I'd open with this. So I'm in this hotel in uh, Belfast, and uh, I thought, oh, God, it's been a hard day. I, was, I want a, a drink, so I rung down to room service, and I ordered a pint of lager. I said, I said what lager do you have? I said, this. I said look, I'll have, uh, I'll have whatever. It's fine. I said, what about uh, a Clonmel? Clonmel uh, is, and it's here now, I'm just going to taste it for you. It's fine, it's crisp, it's light, it's refreshing, it's exactly what I need at the end of the day. Clonmel Lager, so it's a fiver, that's fiver, no problem. Right, I'll have one of those before I do the intro, perfect, well I'm halfway through it now. Um, and the fella comes up with uh, with the lager to the room, knocks on the room door, I open the door. Dad. What, I'm recording the intro? The no, no, it's just me knocking on the glass. Yeah. I know, he's got to be uh, silenced. Anyway, so he knocks on the door and um, I sign for it and I look down and it's £10, not for the lager, it's £10 to bring the lager up, but £5 for the lager. And look, I'm no stinge bag, don't get me wrong. Credit where credit's due and, and, and I'll pay what's owed. But I think... That's kind of extortion. It, don't take the piss out of uh, of people having a bit of room service. Um, anyway, I thought £10 was a bit strong. Tell me if you've been in a hotel that charges a bit more than that. Or am I being naive? I don't think that's standard. I don't think that's standard. Uh, a fiver, maybe, is kind of the norm, isn't it? Oh, God. I've, you see, I didn't want to go off on a rant in the intro and... Inadvertently and organically, because this has just happened, I've just done it. So I'm very sorry if you listen to this um, at seven o'clock on a Thursday morning. There's me ranting about having to pay uh, ten pound, or actually fifteen pounds, just for one very nice but very um, mediocre lager. Uh, that's it. So. Right, you've got, I think there's another week, week or two, to get your two-shot podcast 
t-shirt designs into us. Um, we're going to tweet another link out with everything that you need. The, honestly, you better step up to the mark because there are some brilliant designs um, that we've seen so far. Like really, there was one that I saw today, I think. Was it today? Yesterday. And uh, myself and producer Griff both went, I'd wear that. That is a good T-shirt design. It was very slick. It was very cool. It was very subtle. But look, it can be whatever you want it to be. Just go go with what you feel because you're the one that's going to be wearing it. Uh, certainly if you're the winner, you really are. So, uh, yeah, we'll retweet that. And also, I think we're going to put it on the end of the blurb of the podcast. You know, when we write about what the podcast is going to be about and who's with us, there'll be a link there to our Dropbox. So... We'll sort that, so check it out. Get that sorted. Sharpish. Ah, now this week, it's episode 61 with the legend that is Mark Riley. Now, being the age I am, I'm uh, 42, if you must know. Cheeky bugger. Um, I grew up not knowing who Mark Riley was, but I certainly knew who uh, a fella called Lard was on the radio, and it was the Mark and Lard show. And they were brilliant. And, I, and I'm trying to think, I think it was the first um, northern people I heard on the radio who really kind of spoke to me and played fantastic music. And now I'm a massive fan of Mark Riley on his six music show, Monday to Thursday, 7 till 9. Check it out. So we went to Manchester. Our lovely friends at Zifferblatt on Edge Street put us up and we sat down with Mark and we spoke all things music, the fall, himself and not having a plan. This is episode 61 of the Two Shot Podcast with the fantastic Mark Riley. Enjoy and I'll see you at the end. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline thinking about you and I was about all the different types of stuff you've done throughout your career was there ever a plan a plan yeah you know because when you're a kid you go well I know I want to be an astronaut I'm just going to try and find out I can be an astronaut mm. no never a plan I mean the problem the problem with me is that I am so uh, unacademic if that's a word and therein lies the proof um, <laughs> but um, yeah I just I hated school the only thing that got me through school really was my mates, you know, um, and and I found a kindred spirit. I already had my best mate, which was Steve Hanley. Yeah. But he was a couple of years older than me, and so we went to the same school, St. Greg's in Ardwick, over by the Apollo. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I had a kindred spirit in a, a guy called Craig Scanlon, um, and we'd both seen Bowie on top of the pops doing Starman. I think we'd both seen Bowie doing... Uh, Starman on liftoff as well, another program, uh, a Granada program, and so me and me and Craig kind of bonded, and then we just used to go to gigs all the time, and that's kind of all that got us through, really. I just, mean, just the camaraderie and the music, music, music. It was just that. It was just music 
Completely. And uh, I mean, I would like to be able to say that I just turned me back on academia, but I had no choice. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's turned, turned his back on me. It's back on me, yeah. <laughs> Immediately, yeah. you know, but know your limitations. But the thing is that, obviously, I saw Bowie on uh, on uh, Lift Off with Aisha, and I just thought, I'm not interested in anything else. But, of course, you don't think, particularly if you look at the rock stars of that era, you know, you look at Bowie and you look at Mark Boland, and then as you become a bit more educated through those people, you find... Iggy Pop and the Stooges and Lou Reed you don't ever think I'm going to be doing something a little bit like that you think right I'm just going to go and watch these bands for the rest of my life and have no money <laughs> <laughs> well it's, the realism is that you actually join a band and you don't have any money but and is that then you three is that right you three do you form a band we formed a band yeah um, was it the Sirens yeah, the sirens eventually. There was a funny diversion before that because, and it was particularly um, myself and Craig. Um, <laughs> and I don't know why, it was ill conceived from start to finish, really, but we decided to form a band. So it would have probably been about 1975. Right. But it was a two piece band because Steve couldn't play anything at that point in time. Steve got a bass a little bit further down the line. And what um, were you playing? Guitar. Had you had you learned to play uh, to play guitar yourself, or were you having yeah, yeah, pretty much, but badly, right? I mean, I only knew a few chords, and Craig Craig was pretty much on the same level as I was. We just bought guitars, learned all the open chords, and then, but we decided for some reason because we'd gone from Bowie and stayed with Bowie, but we also went on a kind of prog tip as well, and we were, we loved Genesis particularly, the early uh, stuff. Yeah, with Gabriel, yeah. and we've been to see the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway tour, and you know we had all that written all over our uh, army bags: Bowie, Lou Reed, Genesis, Pink Floyd, whatever. This is my army, <laughs> all yeah. that. And um, so, rather than trying to be a little bit like the Spiders, which is just rock and roll and bar chords, I mean genius, but manageable, we decided to form a two-piece prog band <laughs> with you two do? two guys who couldn't play. So. <laughs> That that really we did fall at the first hurdle, and I remember we had one song that we just used to play over and over again in in the shed at my folks' house, and it was called "Coming Up for Air," which uh, was a George Orwell reference. So, uh, um, <laughs> and it was just this very very simplistic riff going over and over again, and I think the lyrics were "Coming Up for Air," but there's nobody there. <laughs> Which doesn't even make sense, really, does it? <laughs> so, mind you, a lot of the Genesis stuff didn't make sense anyway. So that bit held up. But, um, yeah, and it was then that um, we used to, at the same time, because we were mad on Bowie, we used to go and see a band called Slaughter and the Dogs. Right. Who were a, a Withenshaw band, and we were from Withenshaw. Um, and they used to play the youth clubs and pubs and stuff, you know, and they used to do... Bowie cover versions and we used to see him at Mick Ronson gigs and Mike Rossi the guitarist and stuff so we got to know them a little bit and we found out they were doing a gig in Manchester at the Leicester Free Trade Hall which was the second of the two legendary Pistols gigs yeah and so um, yeah we uh, all three of us went to go and see Slaughter and the Dogs. So we got there for the first band who were also the promoters which was Buzzcocks right I think it was Buzzcocks first gig they were actually the promoters as well. They'd seen the pistols and brought them back to Manchester for the second time. Yeah. Um, and um, and we watched Buzzcocks. Didn't quite know what to make of it. Um, and then we uh, saw Slaughter and the Dogs. We knew exactly what to make of it. Yeah. And then the pistols came on. We didn't know what to make of it. So we went for some <laughs> chips at that point. 
Um, have a debrief. Yeah. <laughs> we, went, we were hungry. You know, what can I say? Um, uh, so we went out and bought some chips and went back and then saw the last quarter of an hour of the pistols and the fight at the end, which was between the Sorter and the Dogs fans and the Pistols fans. And it, it turns out that Smithy, Mark Smith, and Martin Brahma were amongst the North Manchester lot who were on the side of the Pistols. Yeah. And, and we were on the side of the Sorter and the Dogs with the Shaw Boot Boys. But we were on the little balcony upstairs, so we didn't get involved in any <laughs> turmoil. Just, and, yeah, just chips. watching chips, just watching it all kick off down below. <laughs> Um, but that was kind of the the catalyst, really. Then it, it kind of sunk in exactly what was going on with punk, you know. So we formed uh, we formed a band called the Sirens, um, which that was you, Craig, and Steve, and Steve, yeah. yeah. So Steve bought a bass, um, and it was really it was more like Buzzcocks and anything. It was kind of power pop, really. Yeah. Um, and we did one gig at Pips in Manchester, which is part of the Corn Exchange, actually, right now. Um, and that used to be, we used to go there because they had a Bowie, it was a great idea, they had a Bowie room, they had a Roxy music room, they had a soul room, so you could just go and listen to Bowie all night if you wanted, you know, you just took your pick, it's a brilliant idea, I don't know why people don't still do it, um, but we got our only gig there, and we didn't have any transport, so we went in and heard of taxis, and then heard of taxis coming back as well, it was just a nightmare, and we used to rehearse at the um the church hall, which was around about a ten minute walk from um, from Steve Hanley's house where we kept the gear, um, but again we had no transport, so we would just walk back and forth for about an hour with the gear. carrying amps and drums oh. and everything, and then back again. We'd only have an hour to rehearse, and the vicar charged with the fiver, <laughs> which was extortion. So uh, we didn't do anything the, the right way, really. Um, and uh, the only claim to fame from the sirens, really, was the fact that John, uh, the postman who was this legendary character who would get up and do Louie Louie yeah. at the end of all of the gigs. If, if John the Postman got up at the end of your gig, you'd arrived. Yeah. The truth is, I think that John just went to every single gig <laughs> and, and, and got up, yeah. I mean, he was just desperate. There's a really great photograph of um, Buzzcocks. I think it might have been Linda Sterling who took him. I'm not right. 100% sure. Linda, who did the Buzzcocks artwork. Yeah. Earlier. Um, <clears throat> but it's a great picture of... Um, uh, it's a band playing, I think it's Buzzcocks, at the Electric Circus, and there's about 12 people in the audience, and there's one guy stood there with his head down with a blue wind jammer on with playing air guitar and half-mast jeans, and you know, just immediately, you know from the back even that that is John the Postman, because that's what you would see at every single gig that you went to. John playing air guitar, banging his head back and forth, just waiting for the band to go off so that he could jump on stage with his mates and pick up and do Louie Louie, which is three chords, and you know. And so that was our claim to fame. Um, and it's, it was whilst in The Sirens that um, I think it might have been opening for Wayne County in the electric chairs. Right, yeah. Uh, it could have been Penetration. It was definitely one or the other at Rafters, but um, it was me and Craig actually who saw The Fall... Uh, and we were just really taken with them, you know. Um, and I went off and made a fall T-shirt. Um, and so that, Smithy saw that another night at Rafters and just asked me to be the roadie. Oh, did he straight away? Mm, he just, yeah, he just recognised cheap labour. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> He's good for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'd nailed Nicholas to the mast, you know. I think there'd only been one of the fall T-shirt in the world at that point in time right. which belonged to the drummer so that doesn't count that was yeah. self-promotion yeah, yeah. so I think I did have the first fall t-shirt in the world and it, and it got me the job as a roadie which was the kind of catalyst for everything else really so that 
that in itself, you know, I mean, the, probably the most pivotal moment in my life really was going into the back garden. I can't, I can't remember what happened last week, but I can remember what happened in the garden in 1977, early 78 maybe. But I went out and really crudely did a stencil with the fall, got a cap sleeve T-shirt, a spray paint, put it on there. And if I hadn't done that, you know, I haven't got a clue as to what I'd be doing now because that was the kind of trigger that you could go back to Bowie you know, but that was the, probably the first real catalyst. But for an actual kind of physical life-changing uh, moment, it's got to have been that, because if, if that didn't happen, then I probably wouldn't have joined the fall, and then probably all the other things that came after it wouldn't have happened either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this might sound, um, might sound silly or, or ignorant, but were, around that time in the 70s, were band T-shirts like a thing? Because obviously I... When I grew up, they were a massive thing, but around then, were they? Well, um, yeah, you would go, you would go to a John Cale gig and buy a shirt, you know. But there weren't. I tell you what, the thing was really the, the obviously the the Clash and the Jam. They all and Buzzcocks. They all had these homemade shirts, and so it was kind of it, it was a dumb thing. Yeah, yeah, it was it was something that was was happening, and but, and it was all nowhere, like a, nowhere near as popular as like what it what it what it came to be. Oh no, nothing like that at all. No. So how was life on the road as being a roadie? Um, I, you know, I mean, the, the, it was quite often uh, doing support slots, you know, for people like Susie and the Banshees and stuff, but there wasn't much gear. They were my favourite band in the world, you know, I mean, yeah. really. And so it was, it was an absolute Joy. gift for me. Yeah. yeah. You know, and... Um, so it <laughs> certainly didn't seem like work. Well, it wasn't, and and uh, yeah, and I didn't get paid for it, you know. But then again, they didn't get paid for it either, you know. No. It was all real nuts and bolts stuff, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, and I do remember the day that uh, kind of uh, my joining the band came about, really, because they're on the way to do a peel session. Um, and the bass player at the time, a guy called Eric Ferret, who um, Eric Ferret, yeah. <laughs> He's got he's got another real name. Let's stick, please stick with Harry. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it, won't it? Um, <laughs> but and he and he was a mate of John Cooper Clark's, and he played in bands with John previously. Yeah, um, and I th- he was older than everybody else, and I think that he was getting a little bit tired of what perhaps what was going on in the band. You know, Mark was kind of taking control, um, and um, I do remember being the roadie in the back of the van with the guys, and then we went to his house in Presswich. And he opened up the back of the van and he says, I'm not playing in any fucking band with bongos. And he shut the door and went back in. (laughs) (laughs) And what it was. And again, I don't know if it was a financial kind of um, sleight of hand, but Smithy had booked um, a guy called Steve Davison to come and augment the fall on bongos. Right. Congas, actually. Um, And the more people that played on appeal session, the more money you got. Oh, really? So I don't know if that was the, the motive or whether it was a more creative. I've, I've got my suspicions. Yeah. That way. <laughs> but as a result, yeah, um, Eric just slammed the door and went back into his house. And so, and this was for the first Peel session, so we just forged on up the, uh, the M6. And, and Martin Brahma played uh, all the bass parts, and he wrote, he wrote the lion's share of the music anyway. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was about a, a couple of weeks after that they'd been having to think about who would be the new bass player, and, and I got offered the job. And how were your bass skills at the time? 
Minimal. Minimal. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, you know, it is, it is a, and it's a very, very kind of pressing point, really, because I believe that uh, Carl Burns, who was an amazing drummer, probably still is, he was in the band at the time, uh, and Martin Brahma, again, great guitarist, they were great mates with this, uh, uh, with this guy called Paddy Garvey, uh, who apparently was a great, a great bass player. But regardless of the fact that both of those wanted Paddy Garvey in the band, Mark wanted me in the band, probably because I was a very flexible, malleable 16-year-old. Yeah. Who was kind oh, of you were 16 at the time? Yeah, yeah. Shit, I didn't know you were that young. Yeah, so he, I think Mark saw me as something that he could bend into shape and probably wouldn't give any back chat, whereas Carl and Martin, Martin particularly, were his peers. You know, they were mates from before the fall and they were founder members as well. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't having it. And so was um, Paddy Garvey, Steve Garvey, then went on to join Buzzcocks and proved himself to be one of the best bass players around, you know. So there's no doubt that Steve Garvey should have got the job. I'm, I'm sure he's glad he didn't, yeah. ultimately. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, that kind of, that kind of showed the, already the power the power shift within the band from it being because Mark was only going to be the uh, well say only he was going to be the guitarist originally Martin Brahma was going to be the singer but it just didn't pan out Mark couldn't play guitar so da 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 um, but uh, yeah so Mark even at that point was kind of moulding the band into uh, something that he would uh, be able to control probably is the best way of putting it and do you feel that was always the way that there was always a sense of one person having the control yeah. over who's in and who's out. I mean, I know yeah. I'm maybe bored of talking about it, but obviously no, it, no. It, it's, it's quite a big thing and uh, it's really well documented, but, you know, to hear it from, from you. Yeah, um, well, that was, that's why Martin left and that's why Carl left and came back and that's why other people had left. I think, yeah, I would just recognise that Mark had seized control, mm. you know, it was a coup mm. kind of thing, but it proved to be the right thing because Mark, you know... Mark was a visionary and, uh, and yeah. you know, uh, I always say it's a bit like when you get two brothers in a band, you know, I mean, if you've got one really, really hugely talented brother, I'm not talking about Oasis here, actually, because Liam, <laughs> Liam's a great frontman, and he's so he's, you know, but if you've got one hugely talented brother in a band uh, with his other sibling, then just keep quiet and let them get on with it and enjoy well, the, the fruits of it. But, it just, you know, if you look at, you know, and this, I'm not saying Dave Davis isn't talented because he is, he's usually talented, but when you've got somebody writing the songs of, um, you know, the quality of Ray Davis, you would probably think, you think oh, all right, I'll bite me. I'd, I'd like to thump him here, but I might bite him. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've spoken to quite a lot of musicians of, of late yeah. and uh, they have referenced it as like being, because they are a family, you yeah. know, and it is like, sibling rivalry all the time and I can't there's going to be so many ups and downs because that's what family life's like isn't it you know yeah uh, well I mean obviously in a band you just you end up it's, it's, it's all a cliche but the cliche is because it's true you know you just end up being locked in a van with somebody for weeks on end and uh, it was a great thing uh, again no name no patrick but a, a mate of mine was in a band a successful band and they split up and uh, and he said to me, uh, he said it got to the end of it, whereby um, it was one of those where it was like, and do you know what? I ate the way you eat apples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like something that I've been winding him up for years and years, but thought he's too petty to mention it. Uh, but now the time has come. A card on the table. I ate the way you eat apples. It's like you end know, of marriage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that that's part and parcel of being in the band, isn't it? You know. Do you look back at those days with, with fondness? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm very proud of what uh, what I did with the fall. Um, and like I say, the I was in for nearly five years, um, and I started out just being in awe of it. Uh, then I ended up being a, quite a large contributor to the music and everything because Martin Brahma left, and me and Craig started writing all the stuff originally, and then mm. Steve wrote more. Um, <clears throat> But everybody will have their own view on what happened, but I, I did kind of end up a little bit as the, um, the the shop steward, you know, and there was a lot of disquiet in the band and lots of umming and ahhing and frassum grassum, you know, and we lived, um, Steve and I lived in South Manchester, Craig lived over in Gorton, Mark and Kay, Kay Carroll, his partner and manager of the band, um, lived in Presswich and so we'd all heard over there once a week to get our 10 quid wages you know yeah. by the time you got back home you had a five up left because you'd been to the pub and your buffer <laughs> that was that was the, the reality of it you know um, and so it, it, if ever there really was any kind of um, confrontation it would be from me uh, it's just the way it was you know um, for better or for worse yeah and so uh, what I think one of the, at least one factor within the relationship uh, between Mark and I kind of freezing over was just the fact that they probably just thought I could do without this shop steward banging on my door and trying to get what the other musicians in the band thought that they were worth. You yeah, know? and also at that point you weren't a 16-year-old kid anymore. No, well, I got yeah, I got kicked out when I was 21. Yeah. Um, and the story is, the, the romantic story that Mark, I often had flights of fancy, but the, uh, the way that he always portrayed it was that he rung me on my wedding day, and said, oh, I believe you just got married. Congratulations, you're sacked. But that, that isn't the case. We got married on Christmas Eve, me and Trace, in 82. And it was early January 83 when he rung me. Um, Where do you think stories like that come from, then? Mark. It just, oh, it, it was from Mark. It was from Mark, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Well, it just made, it, it made him... Look, yeah, like, you know, like the real it's, it's obviously it's the power game again, like a Shakespearean it? character, you know, um, just the the night of the long knives, you know. But it was a lot. It, the irony was that it, I think it was Steve. It was a day that Steve Hanley got married that he did ring me, and he rung me at Steve's house, and Steve said, "Mark's on the phone for you." I'm like, "Is he right? Okay, because we didn't invite Mark to my wedding, and Steve didn't invite Mark to his either." Right. So, um, and yeah, and then Mark, Mark was on the phone. He just said, "Oh, what meet you tomorrow in the pub?" And so we met in the Lassa Gallery on Princess Street in Manchester. And he said, "Oh, we're going to go to Europe without you, and if it doesn't work out, we'll call you." <laughs> like, Will you? <laughs> right? Okay, that's good. Yeah, you know. Um, so that yeah, that's how it transpired. But yeah, Mark often would you know manipulate stories into a, into a place that made him look a little bit kind of like Machiavellian or yeah. Or yeah, like a, like I say, like a Shakespearean character or something. Did you do you reconcile anything before he passed away? <sighs> it, no, it was a weird one really because um, it was probably about 1987, uh, and a mate of mine I was working on a comic called Oink, a kids comic, and um, well, I used to work in a news agent in Blackpool, and I used to read Oink. Because it was like it was quite top shelf. It was like it, you know you couldn't have it, so I used to top take shelf. it. Well, it was like it was it was for, for the kids. It wasn't down yeah. with the beanos, was it? And it was like a kid in the viz, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It, was, it was it was cheeky and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and lots of spots and poo and stuff yeah. like that. You know. Um, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, one of the guys who worked in the office uh, with me, it was his birthday, and. Um, he had it at Archie's Bar. I don't know what it's called now, by Oxford Road Station. Right. 
Um, and it's on two levels. And at one point, Mick came up to me. And so there'd been a lot of bitching between Mark and I in the press. And it had died down. We've kind of lost interest in each other, really. Um, and he said at that point, um, Mark's missed downstairs. He'd like to have a pint with you. So I was like, yeah, you know, life's too short. So I went down. I had half an hour with him, a couple of pints, you know. Um, got on really well, you know. And it was, it was like, right, OK, great, that's done. Um, and then around about maybe three months later, they reissued on his own label all of the albums that I'd been on and written material for. <clears throat> so I rung him up and just said, all oh, right, I'm Mark, you're doing, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, are you? Yeah, yeah, I see you're releasing um, those four albums with me on. Am I going to get any royalties? No, you're not. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it was off again, <laughs> back to square one. Um, and so... Uh, and But he had a lot of mischief in him, Mark. You know, I mean... Uh, he was a brilliant, brilliant character, and I'm a massive fan of his work. And, of course, if you've got a band going for that long, you're going to have peaks and troughs, you know. Some yeah. of the Fall albums are shockingly bad. Some of them were just game changers, you know, in just my opinion. No. Um, but uh, I, think the, I think the truth of the matter is, that my, particularly when I went to Radio 1, I was just like, I was just like a ghost following him round, you know. I, I believe that he passed a massive, I can't say I blame him, a massive billboard with me and Radcliffe on when we just taken over the Radio 1 breakfast show. Um, and, um, and I can't remember what the story was, but I know that he was really like, oh, God, it's him, <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Like, can I not escape this man, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so I never went away, you see, and I think, I think that kind of bothered him a bit. But the, the funny thing is that when he sat down, he said, you know, I heard we had an album called Gross Out, and he said, I... Um, I've heard the first two albums and I think they're brilliant and all this, you know, when we met at, at that bar. So it was all very convivial and respectful from both of us, you know, but then, yeah, just, yeah, it was the the the, the dollar that yeah. got in the way, sadly, you know, but... Um, but, yeah. you know, anyway, this isn't about Mark e. Smith, this is about you. Uh, That's well, I want to get back to you. So after... Um, 21, so you, you leave there, where, what, do you have a... A place to go next. Did you, what was your? What was the next? The next plan? Um, well, I immediately got. Um, well, I didn't get a band together. But Craig and Steve and Paul. I mean, to be honest, Steve Hanley, who's my oldest friend, um, Steve said, "I'm going to leave with you." Oh, really? I'm going to come with you. Yeah, I'm not up for this. And I said to me, you, "You cannot do that. You know, you, you're in what is still one of the best bands in the world, and what can I offer you? Absolutely nothing." Um, well, bless him for that. Um, but so Craig and Steve and Paul Hanley, Steve's younger brother, drummer, uh, they um, they played on my first record, first solo record. So I set a label up with a, a mate of mine um, who, who was a big fan of The Fall, a guy called Jim Cambata, and the label was called Intape, which I still don't know what the name means, <laughs> but um, that was his, his name, <laughs> not mine. But, yeah, we put a record out, and then, it just, and then the label got a bit bigger, and we put other bands out. We put Frank Sidebottom Records out, and a band called Yeah, Yeah, No, Gay Bikers on Acid, Asphalt Ribbons, who became Tinder Sticks. Um, and, um, do you think that was easier to do back then, to go, right, I'm going to set up a record label? Well, because it's all, obviously it's not, this is not my world. So mm. to, to do that now, would you know if that would be harder? 
Um, well, I mean, it was basically you, you had to find a distribution company that you could work with. Um, but because I had a bit of a name with the fall and everything, that, was, that wasn't a problem. And it was Red Rhino who were based in York. Right. So they had a shop and then it got to a distribution. Then it became part of the cartel. Um, and so they were behind us and eventually would back us as well. So the money was started with Jim's money. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was that easy. I mean, it just was nuts and bolts. You know, you would, yeah. you would, you would, you would hire a recording studio and then buzz off to London, get the record cut, bring it back. It was just, yeah, it was very, very doable. And also probably because you had lots of connections and you knew lots of people. Yeah, then, yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, and also, I mean... Uh, like, say, for instance, the, the last Creepers album probably sold about 10,000, which seemed like a failure at the time, really. Uh, but now for a band to send, sell 10,000 albums is a, is a big deal, you know, because yeah. obviously people don't hand over the cash for albums quite so much, you know, with downloads and everything. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, so we continued, we continued that for a while and, and worked quite hard with the Creepers, but it, it, it was never the fall, you know. It was all, we released... Probably, I don't know, maybe four albums or something. But um, did you want it to be? Did you want it to be another fall, or did you want it to? Be I didn't want to be thing? another fall, but I, I obviously wanted it to be a contender, and I yeah. wanted it to be something that people would remember fondly, um, and some people do. But um, and it, it never really, it never really caught fire, you know. Were and you? I don't f- think were I you was f- ever really a frontman? To be were honest, were you fulfilled though, or were um, you still searching for something? Do you think? Um, again, I didn't know what else to do, really. Um, and, yeah, no, I was enjoying it. And we used to go off and we tour Europe and everything, you know, and, and, and it, it kept us busy. Um, and I, I don't listen to the record now. I don't listen to the four records, though, to be honest, you know. Um, but I did that until I got fed up with the, the Creepers, the band. Uh, and in 1987, I was supposed to make an album with... Um, well, John Langford of the Mekons and Three Johns, um, and also um, Gary Lucas from Gary uh, from uh, Captain Beefheart's Magic Band, the, the Last Incarnation. Uh, Tony Myome of um, Perubu, Steve Goulding out of he played with Elvis Costello and all kinds of people. Um, and just as we were going to go to Chicago to record an album, the Red Rhino went bump. Right, it, it was a, a terrible time. The, the, the whole cartel just went under. So it was all getting very precarious. I'm not sure how it happened, really, but it did. Um, and so we, before that, we just about managed to do a, an album, which is a tribute to Johnny Cash, called Till Things Are Brighter. So the original idea was that John would produce it, John Langford, and I'd, I'd just perform it. Um, and John very wisely said, why don't we get lots of different people to sing the songs and you don't have to do it all because nobody likes what you do anyway. <laughs> and He wasn't that blunt. Uh, no, he wasn't that blunt. <laughs> um, and then um, and do it for um, a charity. So it was the, I think it was the first fundraiser for the Terence Higgins Trust. Right. Um, and Mark Alman was on it and Brendan Croker and uh, Mal from Cabaret Voltaire and Steve Mack from That Petrol Emotion, Pete Shelley from Buzzcock. Um, and that was, a, that was a, a, a successful album, you know? Um, and in fact, it, it, um, I'm probably more proud of that than anything else in the, uh, in the latter part of the 80s, really, because it was, um, it was considered to be the, the album that put Johnny Cash back on tracks, you know? I mean, yeah. you know, it sounds like a, 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 a tall thing to say, but yeah. it's been recognised that that was a thing that even, even his daughter, Roseanne, said this album just gave him the will to go on, which is incredible, really, because we used to go and see Johnny Cash at 
at Blackpool Winter Gardens. Did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at the Palace. And generally speaking, it was kind of the Purple Rinse Brigade who were there. And, like, we were by far the youngest people watching Johnny Cash, but we loved him. And, um, and so we did the album, and then he, he, he put him out there to the, to the indie audience, who then embraced him. And, uh, and so, obviously, Rick Rubin yeah. took it, you know, to, into the stratosphere. Mm. But we, uh, we originally did this... Uh, uh, this album, which which helped give him a bit of uh, yeah, a, a bit of impetus to to continue, you know, because he he was kind of floundering really. Mm. Um, so that that was that was a good thing, and that was that was the last record I made really. Well, apart from the comedy ones, which um, which you might want to discuss, you might not. <laughs> I but, remember listening to them. Um, right. Well, public apology. <laughs> no, yeah. I I enjoyed them as did many people, man. <laughs> um, but um, and, and it was around about that same time that I was working at Oink and so again and that was because I went to school with one of the editors and what did Gallagher. you do there at the magazine <clears throat> oh, I, you see again just uh, about talking about not having a plan and being lucky really I mean I wasn't, I wasn't a cartoonist I was very very poor cartoonist when I turned my hand to it but I did a, I came up with a character called Harry the Head in Oink and I basically created Harry the Head because I couldn't draw people's bodies properly <laughs> And so he was just a head that used to bounce around, or be, get, he had a tuft of hair that his mate would carry him around by. Um, and I had a couple of other characters in there, and I worked in the stu- I worked in the the office as well, putting the actual thing together. Um, but the the editors uh, were Mark Rogers, who sadly passed away, Tony Husband, um, who is uh, a, do you know Tony? At all? I know the name. How do I know the name? Well, he, he does jobs in private eye. Um, he's just an amazing. He's my favourite cartoonist in the world. Uh, you will have seen his work all over the place, no, particularly sure. Private Eye. Yeah, and uh, and he's also um, he lost his dad a few years ago to dementia, and and he's done this um, this book about his journey with his dad, which has just gone kind of through the roof. You know, he's he's going all over the place doing um, dementia talks and stuff. Um, but he's he's a brilliant character, and he was one of the editors, uh, and Patrick Gallagher, who I went to school with, and so we, we just I just got given the job, you know, and again... And, and it's and, a right departure from from what you were doing to yeah, that. Yeah, complete, complete. Um, and we had about three years doing that, I think. And we just used to mess about all the time. There was ridiculous pranks going on and all that. You know, it was just... It was like we really, really hadn't grown up, particularly Patrick and I. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we spent a few years doing that. And then, uh, and then Oink went bump. Um, and again, just by pure chance, he was a record plugger, Tony Michaelides, Tony the Greek, he was known locally, he had Sean Piccadilly radio. And he had a, a radio um, promotions office in the same building. And I just went in there one day and I said to him, um, I want to see Happy Mondays, can you spare me a couple of tickets? And he said, do you want a job? And that was just as Oink had gone under. Um, what the chance is? So it was a, re- was a record plugger. Wow. Um, so, which I knew very little about, even having co-run a label. So what did that involve? It, it, we were regional pluggers for Mute, Factory, um, Circa, lots of different labels, lots of little indie labels, and you just do the mail out, ring up the radio stations, harass them into playing your records, right, okay. arrange interviews, do promo tours, you know... Um, yeah, I spent a lot of time driving around Scotland with Ian Gillen and and people like that, you know. And and it was it was great. It was good fun. Um, 
uh, and I did that for a, a couple of years. But then it was because of that that I ended up going into BBC North when Radio 5 had just started and got offered a job. <laughs> What's so you, going on? I know. So you say, you talk about, do you have a plan? Patently not. No. At uh, any, like... uh, any, uh, any stage in my career, I've, you know, you could say I've not had and uh, the remotest plan, the remotest idea of where it's going to go next. But what's also evident is that you certainly don't seem to have, of course, there's there's good times and bad times, but you don't seem to have not enjoyed a job. You seem to have been really fulfilled and had fun with what you do. Yeah, just ridiculously lucky. I mean, I had a job uh, in sale where I still live now for three months in a video shop. That's my kind of only proper employment, uh, as you could call it, from leaving school. I so, worked in a video shop when I was 15. Well, there you go. Brilliant. Yeah, he, that was... That <laughs> I was, I got all the videos that I wanted <laughs> yeah. to watch, and, yeah, he, was, he, was, he wasn't scraping coal from the pit phase, put no. it that way. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, ridiculous, really. So the job at BBC Radio North, what was that? Well... <clears throat> The story unfolds that I was going in there to... Uh, Radio 5 had just started, and they, mm. had, they were having a new programme um, on a Wednesday night, maybe a Tuesday night, called Hit the North, funnily enough. Um, and, uh, and a guy called Quentin Cooper, who was going to be the, uh, the exec producer on it, he asked me if I would present it, um, because he knew The Fall and The Creepers. And I said, I'd never... The only person I'd ever done anything uh, as regards radio was I interviewed Iggy Pop for Tony Michaelides, Tony the Greeks programme on Piccadilly. I interviewed Iggy Pop in 1987. Did you? That's all I'd done. And so I said, I, I've never presented a radio programme. I wouldn't know the first thing about it. I said, why don't you ask Mark Radcliffe? So Mark Radcliffe was producing um, The Organist Entertains uh, for Radio 2 at that point in time. And, and how did was, you know Mark? Sorry to stop you. Well, I knew him through Frank Sidebottom. He was Frank Sidebottom's keyboard player and I used to be in some of the pantomimes and stuff yeah. that Chris was putting on. Right. And also he produced a couple of Peel sessions for the Creepers. Right. So I knew him, but I didn't know him well. Mm. But I was also taking him records because he was also producing in concert for Radio 1. So I'd take him World of Twist records and say, do you like that? Yeah, I love it. Would you book him in concert? Yeah. So, that, so that's how I... And I'd heard him on the radio previously, a few years previously. And so I said to Quentin Cooper, you want to get this guy and he's downstairs and he's done radio programs before. Yeah. And, so he, and so the audition Mark and he got the job. So that's how Mark got back into radio. Right. Um, and then he used to have um, uh, a woman called Alison Martin, Alison Bell now, hello Alison. Um, and she went in every week or every other week to have a chat with Mark about what was happening in Manchester at the time. So you're thinking it's like... It is the Roses and the Mondays and the Inspiral Carpet, all those bands, yeah. you know. Um, so it was a, a hot spot. Um, oh, but it really they, was at that point when everybody was coming into Manchester and everybody was taking the music out of yeah, Manchester. People were coming here to go to the university because of what was going on culturally yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for some reason, Mark and Alison didn't connect. And so after maybe six months, Quentin Cooper came back to me and said, all right, you know, I know you don't want to present the programme, but would you come in every other week and talk to Mark, to Mark Radcliffe about what's happening with a lot of the band I was working? Like I say, I was working with the factory bands, so you've got Northside, the Mondays, New Order, the Wendy's, and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
and just talk to him about what's going on in the north of England because that was our remit. There was five different shows that came from five different parts of the UK and you had to just fly the flag for your own particular part yeah. on your particular show. Um, so I was terrified, but I went and did it every other week. And then they said, yeah, this is going all right. Do you want to come and do it every week? So I was like, yeah, okay. And then it was, do you want to be the researcher? Because you, you, know, you know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, all right. And then it was one of those situations where the, uh, the BBC were made to put a lot of programmes out for independent tenure, which, uh, tender, which was, um, was when it was all starting, that kind of thing. You know, the government had made them put programmes out rather than keep it all within the BBC to put it out to the private sector. And so Mark Radcliffe and I set up a company <clears throat> to produce this programme, Hit the North, and we got it. And so I ended up being the producer and co-presenter. And then that's when Matthew Bannister heard it and then offered Mark a job on Radio 1. Mark wanted to take me with him. And so we ended up doing the nighttime show on, on Radio 1 from 94, was it? Yeah. I think, maybe. So that was, that's, again, just, that's how I got into radio, just pure accident. And where on earth did the sidekick name come from? <clears throat> that was because... I've always wanted to ask you that and I've right. never known. <laughs> yeah, no, what it is... Um, Is that a boring question? Do people, no, like, people ask you that loads? No, not really. Um, what it was, I used to play a lot of football, mm. five-a-side, and, uh, and play squash, and I still play squash a bit, but I was quite fit. And then I did my backing quite um, quite badly and stopped playing for about a year and just the weight piled on. And I yeah. remember being in the... In the in the goods lift at radio at BBC North with Radcliffe, uh, just before we we're going to go on air, and I said I'm going to have to shift some of this lard. I don't know where this is coming from, um, and, and and obviously he's Mark and I'm Mark. The funny thing is, I, I had a back and forth with somebody recently. Um, I put up a, uh, a David Bowie autograph on Twitter, yeah, and they, and he signed it um, for Mark with a C, um, Dave Bowie. And he never signed anything like that, but he did it a favour to me because we used to call him Dave Bowie from the Dave Bowie Band. So I don't think anybody else, maybe somebody from the 60s will have a Dave or a Davey, but it was always David Bowie. Uh, so I just put it up online. But it was my fan club membership, and it's got Mark with a K. Yeah. And people are going, but you spelt it wrong, or you spelt it wrong. I'm going, no, all right, what happened was I, I, I had to change my name when I was in the fall, so that imprint... We wouldn't get confused, me and if I was saying something and Mark Smith was saying something, we wouldn't get confused. And so on this occasion, of course, I'm working with another Mark, which would be slightly confusing. So, and he gave me the nickname, he said, Lardy Boy, I think he said, Shuffle Off Lardy Boy, yeah. or something, when we were having a, a comedic Barney early on on Hit the North. And it just kind of stuck, you know. Um, but, the, yeah, the, the worst side of it was I didn't get back to playing football for ages and I did get a right old belly on me. I've still got one now. A bit, yeah, but... you're all right. You're looking fantastic, Mark. Come mm, on. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and do you feel now that even doing the job that you do on a day-to-day basis now, you, that you're learning and you're growing and obviously you're discovering new talent all the time? Is it, do you can, I know you consider yourself really lucky, but are you... Are you, are you I suppose, are you more fulfilled now doing what you do? Do you feel you've found your base? This this is what I, I'm meant to be doing. Or do you still feel like if it all went away tomorrow, oh, I'd go and just do, go and do something else? Well, I've still not got a plan. So <laughs> I don't uh, think you should have a plan well, after all never, this. You really never. I always say I've got a stiff neck from looking over my shoulder for 28 years, you know, because... In show, on the periphery of show business, you never know what's going to happen next. But I always say this is the best job I've ever had because, I mean, it is a blank canvas. I pick all the bands 
the, the live band that come in and play for us, I never have to sit there and think, God, I wish I was somewhere else because I've asked them and I yeah. want them to be there. Um, so, so in a is, sense, you've, you've got a sense of control about what you do. It's not like back in the day where you were told to have a playlist. This is your, your sort of curating your own show. Well, the weird thing is now, I mean, Chris Evans has just jumped ship from Radio 2 mm. and there's this rumblings on Twitter about Radcliffe and I getting back together again to do it, you know, which isn't going to happen. In a million years, I was talking to Mark about this last night. Um, but all the, the dredge all the stuff up, you know, uh, that we used to do. Mm. Um, and it was, I think some of it was pretty funny, but uh, you, there's no way you would get away with it now. It was so, it was so near the knuckle. Um, the did double, have, the double have, entendre. Sorry? Did you have control then, back in those days, in the Radio 1 days? Did you have more control than what you would have had now, saying on that station? We were out of control. <laughs> To be honest, I mean, there'd be stuff going on, and like you could, we'd try and make each other laugh, which is fatal, absolutely fatal. So, when you're pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, you've got to push it further to get the other one to, you know, react to the unexpected. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes we just pushed it too far. And of course, I mean, everybody thinks that I was fat Harry White, but I wasn't. And they think that because Harry White was like rude and you know, deeply offensive, so naturally they <laughs> thought it was me. But it wasn't, it was Radcliffe. Um, and it was actually based on a character that Vic Reeves had done. Right. It's online, you can see it. So he, he did, <clears throat> the way that started was that um, um, Jim, Jim Moyer, Vic Reeves, did a pastiche of um, Barry White with that low, grumbly voice and a bit, how was your father, you yeah. know? And Mark came in on Hit the North, I think it might have been, can't remember, might have been Radio 1. But he said, oh, and he was very open about it. He said, oh, did you see that? And then replicated it. And then and then it continued. He's like, oh, well, that was really funny. And so I don't know what Jim thinks about that, um, Vic Reeves. But anyway, uh, but people always thought it was me. And that's why on the very last show, as Mark was doing Fatty White, they faded the effect out, so it was just his voice. You could hear him doing it. But some of those scripts were like, I was going, oh, my God, no, you cannot say that. And they were live. So, and there's even the story that um, the boss of Radio 1 at the time used to make the people in London, the staff in London, turn the radio off whilst we were on. Is that true? That's what I was told. I'd love if that was true. So would I. <laughs> <laughs> Bad influence and all that. But, you know, I mean, obviously, we, we, we got Kylie Minogue. Again, you see, that was a, a, a funny twist because Kylie Minogue, we got her to do some jingles for us when nobody was bothered about Kylie Minogue. And it was like stuff like, oh, Mark, uh, Mark and Lard. <sighs> or Mark and Lard, at least four good records in every programme, <laughs> which really upset them in London. But there was four free choice records. Oh, was there? There was, yeah, there was one every half hour that Mark would pick. And so the rest of it was stuff that we were given to, most of which we didn't like, some of which we thought was all right, and some of which we might actually like. But not much, you know. And so we used to have all those ruses where we'd come out of Usher and say, garbage. And then I'd say, what? They said, the garbage. Not been in to pick up the garbage. You know, just those kind of inane. But, yeah. And you could see where it was going what on. A nice, little, a nice little dig. It's just an obvious... Yeah. Just an obvious waving the flag to say we're not particularly happy about playing that. But And, and that's why Radio 1 had to get rid of us, really, because we were just a couple of cynical old blokes who hated what we were playing. You know, it, and the, the, the cliche being that the audience would be split between people who would turn me and Mark up and then turn the music down, or they'd turn the music up and then turn me and him down. You know, yeah. the two different sets of people who liked the music who thought we were a couple of 
old dickheads yeah and vice versa you know um and so yeah um there's also those people that would just tune in just for your show and then tune out for all the other people's shows yeah i suppose so i mean it was a very uh it was a very influential show just because it was well, probably because of that, because we were obviously two blokes in the wrong place yeah. at the wrong time, you know. I just always, uh, I loved putting the radio on and listening to you, also because I really liked it, but also because, oh, they sound like me, and I know where they're from, they're not, I'm not hearing all the posh voices or the London voices, I'm hearing a, a nice Lancashire voice, so I can yeah. relate to that. Well, I mean, that was, like, part of the problem, um, funnily enough, with the breakfast show, because, like, people were, people were saying, we don't want to hear two miserable northern men uh, you know, uh, in the pitch black at seven o'clock on yeah. a December morning, you know, um, and I can understand that <laughs> completely. <laughs> Mark, please continue to not have a plan. Mm, okay, I'll do my best, mate. Mark Riley, thank you so much. An absolute pleasure, Craig. Thank you. <laughs>